Shalom, brethren and sisters and young people. Well, we saw in the first part of the Lord's Prayer just how many aspects of the truth, how many doctrines of the truth are bound up in just so few words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why, brethren and sisters, that as we were preparing this study that we, we felt that it illustrated so beautifully the, the comments of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he spake like no other man. All of his words were full of reasoning. You know, when he spoke the parable of the sower, he was to say, it was to be said of him that without a parable spake he not unto the people. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ that he never spoke a word and it wasn't parabolic. It's true he's told parabolic stories, but of course all that he spoke was parabolic. And parable, of course, means something with a spiritual meaning. And so we have in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything he said can be expanded out uh, so beautifully for us to understand other Bible doctrines. Brother Roberts was to say in one of his writings, it's concerning the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I honestly couldn't find it in preparation for uh, this weekend, but this is a paraphrase of what he said, and that is that the words of Christ are like beautifully cut diamonds with many wonderful facets. And just as you can look at the same diamond from different angles, so it is with the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They can be viewed from various viewpoints. And that will come out so clearly now as we move on into this subject. It has already been seen when you think about it because we've considered the word Father and how that is used in Scripture right through from Father of all as the Creator through the Father of Israel and so forth, our Father. Then you have the word Heaven and the aspects of Heaven again are manyfold when you look at it. It's not just a location but it refers to the greatness of God. So there are these facets to everything that is said by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it comes to the kingdom, it's no less because there are several facets now that he's going to bring out. As we look at the word kingdom, brethren and sisters, again we're faced with the point, of course, that the kingdom is a reference to all the earth. He, as creator, has created this earth. As king, it is his kingdom. Let's have a look at this verse in Psalm 70, uh, 47 rather, and in verse 2, where clearly the context here is all the earth. 47 verse 2 For Yahweh Most High is terrible He is a great king over all the earth So that's one aspect when we're talking of kingdom But he of course was king over Israel And the kingdom of Israel of course is spoken of As the kingdom of God in Israel in the past And so in Isaiah Isaiah 43 it refers uh, to to Israel as being the kingdom of God. We have then, of course, in the New Testament constantly the words of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning the kingdom of heaven. He came to preach the kingdom of heaven. Let's have a look at that quotation there in Matthew chapter 11 because Matthew 11 points out that there was a point in history at which the kingdom of heaven began to be spoken. That until this point, the kingdom of heaven was not an aspect of the scriptures at all, but it was introduced by John the Baptist. And so in Matthew chapter 11, and picking up the words, uh, perhaps we can go back to verse 10, just to see this is concerning uh, John the Baptist, for 
It is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And then to explain what he's talking, he says, Now from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So when John the Baptist came, he began a period of time scripturally called the the, uh, kingdom of heaven because that was the basis of his message which was to be taken up by the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles, that God would establish a kingdom on this earth. But more than that, as we'll see, because this term kingdom of heaven, again, like we picked up in the very first statement, our Father, is a term that relates only to the saints. Mortals will rejoice in the kingdom of God. There will be those in the millennial reign of Christ who are not now the saints of God but they will, during the millennium, have an opportunity to serve God in spirit and truth. They are not of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a reference to those who would accept the principles of the truth before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and go into the kingdom as the heavenly bodies of that kingdom. We have been called to be in heavenly places with Christ. That is the kingdom of heaven. It's just interesting in verse 11 that you often hear that verse of John the Baptist interpreted this way, that John the Baptist is actually saying that if you are in a least position in the kingdom, in other words, it's often referred to the words of David, that I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. So even if we were just in the kingdom, in any lesser position, we're still greater than John the Baptist was. Well, that's not what it's talking about. And the word least there in the, in the Greek is a word that literally means less in time. It's a, chronology, a word that relates to chronology of time. Five times it's used elsewhere in the, in the Gospel records and it's translated as a little while. So it's a period of time. And of course, John the Baptist was born before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John had been in the kingdom longer, as it were, than the Lord Jesus Christ, yet he was greater than John the Baptist. So that's what it's talking about, the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then it goes on and says that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And it's talking, brethren and sisters, about those who come into the kingdom of heaven. The word literally, suffers violence, you notice in the margin it says he's gotten by force. Bullinger translates it as by obstinate, perseverance. That's the idea. One will only get into the kingdom of heaven by obstinate perseverance. It has the idea of, in in the Greek, of being energetic towards something. It's only those who are energetic towards the things of God and therefore they take it by force or zealously take it, as Thea tells us that word means. They press into it. The record, of course, in, in Luke tells us. And so it's not an easy thing, brothers and sisters, and that comes out in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it, in the two ways, the straight and narrow way which we have to lead. It's not easy. We have to, by obstinate perseverance now, eventually find a place in the kingdom of God. But it's spoken of here as the kingdom of heaven. 
But then, of course, there is the millennium. There is the future millennium, which is the kingdom of God, which I suppose we would particularly be referring to and have in mind when we read the words, Thy kingdom come, because we're talking of something which is future. But the phrase, the kingdom of heaven and the future millennium are the same time period. The same time period, but as we've said, the kingdom of heaven relates to the saints. They are the ones who are mentioned, for instance, in Revelation 20 and verse 4 as the ones who have the opportunity to be there uh, with the Father. They're spoken of as being before the throne, those many people in heaven, in heaven, around the throne. But that's the principle that's here, is being talked about. And then, of course, the kingdom is to be established, but the benefit of that, as far as tutoring of the word of God is concerned, will be uh, with the mortals. We, as the saints, as the king priests, will be instrumental in teaching the word during the millennium. But really it is the mortals who will, go, who will also reap the benefit of their being in that kingdom. Revelation puts it this way because it talks of the marriage supper of the Lamb, talk about rather the marriage of the Lamb and the supper of the Lamb. And the marriage of the Lamb is when the saints become totally united with the Lord Jesus Christ in immortality. But then it goes on and said, And blessed are they who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the Gentiles. The Gentiles have an opportunity then to rejoice with the bride and groom during their time. And that's of course what literally happens in a Jewish wedding for once the marriage is is, uh, uh, consummated on the first night, although it would last for 7 or 14 days, the doors are thrown open and everyone can come in. You don't need an invitation. And so it is with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The saints will be united with their groom first And then there are those who are open once the doors are thrown open. The nations are invited to come in uh, to the kingdom of God on earth. And so we have those two aspects of this word kingdom which would relate to the subject that we're dealing with uh, tonight. Now of course we know these verses or at least we know Proverbs 29 verse 18 I would dare say that without a vision the people perish. Without a, people, without a vision, brethren and sisters, the, word, the idea is that they run amok. Without a vision, without something to draw us into line, then we become, as the word is, naked. And so we need, brethren and sisters, this vision. And the, the, uh, king, the, rather the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ can in fact remind us of that by, by using the words that the saints of God will pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. And if we're going to be part of that, brethren and sisters, then we are going looking forward to being in that kingdom and that vision itself will help us as we endeavour to walk a godly walk before God. Paul puts it this way, if you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 18, he takes up the same idea concerning the need for the vision, for the joy of looking for the kingdom of God in the second Timothy chapter 4 and at verse 8 where Paul says in 7 I've fought a good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the righteous judge shall give me at that day but not to me only but to all them also that love his appearing. 
We need, brethren and sisters, that vision. We need to have something in our minds, a mind's eye picture of what the kingdom is all about that will spur us on to walk in that way which leads unto life eternal. Of course, to do that we need to prepare for that kingdom. And each one of those quotations, brethren and sisters, speaks of the need to prepare for the kingdom of God. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, brethren and sisters, and the judgment seat takes place, what is going to be taken is the character formed by each one of us and made immortal. Our characters are not going to be changed. The character which we picked up this morning is God manifestation or is the nature of God. That character, brethren and sisters, has to be formed before Christ comes. True, our knowledge, our abilities to perceive the things of God, our abilities to move and of course the fact that we can live forever, all those are additional but they will be based upon that which we have prepared in this day and age. The Lord Jesus Christ does not take a clean slate and out of it make a saint in the kingdom. He does that at baptism. When we pass through the waters of baptism, we are forgiven of all our past sins and as it were, we come out as a clean slate. But upon that, brethren and sisters, has to be inscribed the principles of godliness that the Lord Jesus Christ will then take and will change into immortality. So important for us then to see that it's not a matter of sitting back and waiting for the kingdom and saying all those things will change when the kingdom comes. We need to make changes in our life now to prepare for that. Let's have a look at a couple of those quotations. Pick up the second one, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. The words of Christ here in regard to our preparation for the kingdom of God. You notice it's in the same chapter that we've been dealing with. But he ends up having given the prayer which says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. He says in verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto thee. And so seeking the kingdom, brethren and sisters, is another way of saying to manifest God in our life because that's what it involves. And that's why it's so important to see the necessity for that change in our life now. It's the necessity of seeing that the kingdom of heaven is different to the kingdom in the future in the sense that it's involved with people who, are, who have already made that choice and have lived a godly life as they had the opportunity. Hebrews chapter 4, the Apostle Paul this time gives us the same advice in regard to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we desire, brethren and sisters, to be in the kingdom, here's the exhortation. There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. And in essence, brethren and sisters, all we're doing as we're dealing with this part of the prayer is dealing, of course, with Genesis chapter 2. On the seventh day, God rested. And that day became hallowed and he blessed it and hallowed the seventh day. That, brethren and sisters, was prophetical of the kingdom age. We've gone right back into the basic lessons of Genesis. But here he continues on um, and in verse, um, verse 9 There remaineth therefore rest for the people of God for he that is entered into his rest he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his 
Let us labour, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. It's just interesting again that the word labour there, brethren and sisters, is a Greek word that doesn't just mean to pick something up and carry it. It's a word that would be used of someone who was loading things in a hurry. You know, it's a certain time and jobs have to be done and you hurry about that labour. That's this word. It's got that idea of hurrying about doing something. Not just sitting back and doing it slowly. It's got to be done. I'll take my time. This is preparing for the kingdom of God. And every day, brethren and sisters, becomes important in our preparation for that time. So Christ goes on and he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Now, brethren and sisters, there really, I suppose, is two stages here that are being spoken of. Primarily, of course, the stage when God's will will be done as it is in heaven. And so we can say that thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth is a reference to the kingdom age because it's a time when the, the will of God will be done both by the nations because they will be caused to whether they like it or not for he that doesn't come up to worship God will be punished likewise for that and will need to see the necessity of coming up. There will be a control over sin during the time of the millennium so that God's will will be done. True, it'll be done by the pressure that's put upon them from the saints and from Almighty God. And of course at the end of the thousand years they will rebel against that. But nevertheless it will be done during that time. But of course more importantly it will be done by the saints of God who are the king priests for that time. So the kingdom actually is a time when the will will be, God's will will be done on earth. But the second phrase, as it is in heaven has to, brethren and sisters, it just has to refer to the time beyond the millennium because that's the only time that God's will will be done as it is in heaven because God's will in heaven, brethren and sisters, is done by all. All the angels do his will. There are none in heaven who do not obey the will of God voluntarily and lovingly so. That will not happen during the kingdom age. There will be those who are doing it reluctantly and will rebel. But not so the millennium. And so we know the words of, of the Apostle Paul in the 1st Corinthians 15 where he deals with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and that eventually there will be the handing back of the kingdom to God. He will hand back the kingdom to God and God will be all and in all. And so the all in all period, brethren and sisters, is really... It's scripturally, you could say, a period of a kingdom because there will still be a king but this time it will be Yahweh and there will be in that kingdom his immortals, the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints. But it is a change, brethren and sisters, which is conjured up in this term that it is done in heaven. The first, of course, is in the words of, uh, uh, the words of scripture that the earth, Isaiah 11 and Habakkuk 2 both say the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Whereas Numbers 14.21, Psalm 22, Isaiah 6 and Revelation 18 say that it will be filled with the glory of God. And you notice the difference? Filled first with the knowledge of the glory. Everybody in the kingdom age will know of God 
and will know what it means to manifest his glory, that is, to do his will. But in the beyond age, when all will have immortality, they are filled with the glory of God, or the earth shall be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. There is nothing, brethren and sisters, but the glory of God seen in that time beyond the kingdom. So, in a simple phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven, our mind is taken right through to the, to the kingdom of God as it's established now, as it will be established for a thousand years and beyond when God is all and in all. How powerful are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom, brethren and sisters, should be the answer to our prayers. Have a look at at Luke chapter 11 where Christ makes it very, very clear that part of our prayers unto God, and that comes out in, of course, in the Lord's Prayer, is that thy kingdom come. Now Luke 12 is the parallel record, just it gives us an opportunity to have a look and see the words of, of Luke chapter 11 where Luke records what we call the Lord's Prayer but with the slight changes that we mentioned before. Because in Luke chapter 11, at the beginning of that chapter, um, we read in verse 2, He said unto them, When ye pray, say. Now the word our, our, A-U-O-U-R, is not there in the Greek on this occasion. So he simply says, Say, Father, which art in heaven. And I believe personally that's done, brethren and sisters, to highlight the meaning of the words in, in, um, uh, in Matthew. If that wasn't there, I suppose we'd read both records and just simply say, oh yes, our Father will chart in heaven. Why is it mentioning one and not in the other? Well, it gives us an opportunity to look at the fact and to find out, of course, that it's a term that only, uh, um, only means something to the uh, um, uh, disciples, which includes ourselves, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now notice, brethren and sisters, and I've got it marked in both records, but in verse 2 you've got thy name, thy kingdom, thy will. But in the next two verses we've got give us our daily bread, give, so you've got us our, in verse 4 you've got us our sins, you've got indebted to us, you've got lead us, but deliver us from evil. So as we go through, brethren and sisters, there is first the emphasis upon Almighty God and then upon ourselves. No, it's not upon ourselves. It's not we. It's not give me my day, is it? It's not my daily bread. It's our daily bread. So it's a communal prayer. We can never pray the Lord's Prayer without a recognition of our brethren and sisters. And again, brethren and sisters, that to me becomes a very important key to some of the phrases that are used. For instance, well, we're not picking that up now, but for instance, when we talk about, in verse 3, give us our daily bread, we could argue the point that, of course, in, in my case, on my pension, well, therefore, I'm getting money from the government. Where does that, what does that mean to me? We're going to see that it does actually mean something because it, would be, it wouldn't be any good unless... Yahweh worked and we had food but just looking at it on the surface we'd say well where really can we identify with that but when we say us brethren and sisters we're including our brethren and sisters in other countries around the world that do go without food every day and the very fact that it's plural brethren and sisters brings that aspect into it 
And I believe you me, and I've been into some of these countries, that there are brethren and sisters out there who go day by day without food. It is our prayers, brethren and sisters, on their behalf that Yahweh would look after them as well. So that plural term is so important here and opens up again another aspect of the prayer. Now if it's our prayer, brethren and sisters, and we take that point on board, then come with me to Psalm 72 because it was, of course, the prayer of David as well. And that's where Psalm 72 concludes. It concludes this way in verse 20 of Psalm 72, the prayers of the son of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The word ended here, brethren and sisters, is a Hebrew word, of course, and it's the word which actually means to accomplish or to fulfil. And it's translated that way in a couple of quotations, that's two of the several quotations in the, New Te- in the Old Testament where that word is translated as accomplished and fulfilled in Chronicles, and we'll look them up in a moment to show you because we can mark them in fairly quickly. But it's a word that means accomplished or fulfilled. The prayers of David are fulfilled in this psalm. When David prayed, Psalms, wrote Psalm 72, his prayers were answered. That is the answer to all his prayers. And it's the answer, brethren and sisters, to our prayers as well. It does not mean that David, this was the last time David wrote, he never wrote another prayer. But this is a prayer, brethren and sisters, which when understood is the answer of David and it's the answer to our prayers as well. And we're going to have a look at that in a moment. But let's just have a look at these two quotations because they're next to each other and again, if you're a lazy marker of your Bible, uh, there's a quick way here you can mark it. But in the Second of Chronicles, well let's go to Ezra 1.1, doesn't really matter because I think for memory they're on the same page, but Ezra 1 and verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The word ended in Psalm 72. It might be fulfilled. You go back to verse 22 of the uh, um, second of Chronicles uh, and chapter 36 which is on the same page, a couple of verses above it. Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia the word of Yahweh spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. Same word translated ended in Psalm 72 verse 6, verse 20. And if you want to do again that quick marking, you can underline accomplished at the top of the page, fulfilled down the bottom and draw a line through it. I always draw a green line, that tells me they're both the same words in the particular language, whether it be Greek or Hebrew. So there on one page is the same word used, translated as accomplished and fulfilled. Now how beautifully then, brethren and sisters, that fits into Psalm 72. We look at Psalm 72 as David praying for what we pray for and that is the kingdom of God. And if David can say, in this prayer all my, uh, my prayers are answered, in this psalm rather, all my prayers are answered, we can say the same. Now let's go and have a look at Psalm 72 for a moment and uh, um, divide the, uh, the chapter up because it's a very interesting chapter indeed. It starts with these interesting comments in verses 1 to 3. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. 
He shall judge thy poor with righteousness and thy poor with judgment and the mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. They're interesting words, brethren and sisters. Verse 1 refers to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's David speaking and he's speaking, of course, of his son, not Solomon. You notice the psalm over the page, the bottom of the psalm, it has the caption, it's a psalm for Solomon. It's concerning Solomon in that sense because he was typical of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's talking about the son of David, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the appeal that his kingdom might be established. So verse 1 is actually dealing with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, believe believe it or not, is talking about the judgement of the saints. Now how do we know that? Well, notice what it says. Thy people... Thy poor. The word thy doesn't occur anywhere else in this chapter. Oh, the poor are mentioned, the people are mentioned later on. Verse 4, for instance, that's a judge the poor of the people and later on it's used again. But here it's thy people, thy poor. Here are the saints, brethren and sisters, the ones mentioned in the what we call the Beatitudes of the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are the poor. And that's speaking of the saints. They are the special people of God who are judged and they're judged with righteousness and with judgment. And so we have the judgment seat pointed out for us. Now keep your finger in Psalm 72 because we're going to go back to that but I think we're in, such, we're in a certain position in, in the history of this world that we need to consider for a moment the judgment seat of God. That's the next thing that's going to happen, brethren and sisters. Well, after the return of the Lord Jesus Christ that is. But when he returns, the next thing we know, brothers and sisters, we will be standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And I'm sure in the minds of many of us, we're frightened when we think in terms of that subject. We should not be frightened, brothers and sisters. We should fear the day, yes, to a certain extent, because we do not know as to what the results will be, except we have been promised if we live a godly life, we manifest God, we can have life but we are going to have to stand before God in a circumstance in which all those inner things are going to be brought out. It's not going to be a very comfortable time for us. But you can imagine what comes out of that with the joy of being the kingdom uh, being established. Come with me back to 1 Peter and um, chapter 4 and from verse 17 where we have a reference, of course, to the judgment seat. First of Peter 4, For the time is come that the judgment must begin at the house of God. Now that's what we're being told in Psalm 72 because the next verses are going to deal with judgment on the nations. But it begins in verse 2 with judgment on the saints. It begins at the household of God and if it first begin with us, what shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? So three classes, brothers and sisters, are going to stand before the judgment seat. Three classes. They're called the righteous, the ungodly and the sinner. Now we know what the righteous are because they're the good seed of the parable of the sower. We hope and pray it will include all of us here, brothers and sisters, who are trying to manifest God in our life It's the saints who will be accepted by the Lord Jesus Christ. We know who the sinners are because they're the ones not baptised. Because once we're baptised, we're not a sinner. 
right? It may be a bit of a surprise to hear that, but it's true. Are we not sinners? Because sin has been washed away at baptism through the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, as Brother Thomas very beautifully points out in Eureka, those who are saints are not sinners. There's a class of saints, there's a class of sinners. And sinner means we haven't got the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are sinners because they cannot approach to God through prayer and receive forgiveness of sin. It's impossible for a sinner class to do that. But we can be amongst the ungodly. We can be amongst those, brethren and sisters, who know the truth but disgrace it. Those who should be the righteous but we haven't lived godly lives. They're the ungodly. So you've got these three classes that stand before the judgment seat. If I was talking to somebody here who's not baptised, well, they could possibly be the third class. We, we would hope and pray they wouldn't be. The rest of us, brethren and sisters, we hope and pray would be class one and not class two. And with those three classes in mind, brethren and sisters, we go back then to Romans 2. And Romans 2, to my mind, the Apostle Paul seems to pick up this idea that Peter is using and picks up the same idea but approaches it from a slightly different way and gives us the result of that judgement. So that in Romans chapter 2, you again have the judgement. Go back to verse 5. After the hardness and impenitent heart, treasuring up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now that's Psalm 72 verse 2 that he will judge with righteousness. Now, he says, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for honour and glory, they receive immortality, eternal life. Sorry, if they seek for honour and immortality, they receive immortal life, eternal life. So here's the first class, the righteous of the first of Peter 4. But to them who are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. In other words, they didn't get baptised because that's what their obedience implies. Then upon them, indignation and wrath. And indignation and wrath has the idea, both words, of a sudden anger, something that is dispensed quickly and suddenly. And it can't be anything else because a person who's baptised, the Lord Jesus Christ can say nothing more than to than you're not baptised, you're not a brother or sister of mine, you won't be in the kingdom. End of subject. But that's not true, is it, of those who have been called to be saints who haven't lived the truth. They must go through a more, if you like, protracted form of, of um, judgement. When their lives are opened and issues are brought out and settled, and they must be settled, at the judgement seat. And so we read of them in the next verse tribulation and anguish. And just as indignation and wrath are a sudden thing that takes place, this is a drawn out judgment, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, whether they be of Jew or Gentile. They've been baptised, but they have not lived a godly life. They're the ungodly of the, of the verse that we are looking at earlier. So there's your three classes. There's the way God ministers the judgment. Life eternal to those who have done the right thing and who have endeavoured in their life. They won't live a perfect life, but that's what the work of Christ makes up for in that sense. 
But if we turn our back, brethren and sisters, on the truth after we've been baptised and don't live a godly life, then there also is tribulation and anguish. But of course, as far as those who are not baptised are concerned, well, indignation and wrath upon them. But you know, brethren and sisters, when we look at this and we look at the judgment seat, we realise that it is a very, very necessary thing for us to go through because we're human and because we are never entirely honest with ourselves or with God. We like sometimes in our prayer to hopefully every day pray that God would forgive us of our trespasses but how often are we really honest with God as to telling what those trespasses really are? And I suppose the other factor is how many times during the day, how many days do we not really know what those trespasses were? And therefore we have to pray that our prayers, which we didn't, our, our sins rather, which were inadvertently done, that they might be forgiven as well. But when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, that'll all be cleared up, brothers and sisters, and they'll be brought into the open and we face them. And like that, you know, we have a, a periods in our life, perhaps you didn't, but in my childhood I had periods in my life where I did things which were wrong. Um, contrary to anything that my brothers would tell you. Um, no, we, we do things wrong and sometimes it's of so serious a matter we don't even sleep at night about it and we're frightened someone's going to be found out. When they find out, there's terrific relief. Not nice at the time, but when you know it's in the open. Brethren and sisters who have, to fa- have had to face major issues in the ecclesia, particularly of disfellowship, are in that position. And those who have done the right thing and come back into the truth have said it was the best thing that ever happened to them. It put their whole life in perspective. And they, brethren and sisters, have a benefit you and I haven't got. A brother who commits adultery and is out of fellowship, we know that. And when he stands at the judgment seat with us and his angel says, that brother's committed adultery, we knew that. What about the brother over there? It's never been found out and he never said anything and the angel said, and he's done it too. Who's the more embarrassed of the two? I think those brethren in some way have got an advantage in those things taking place now, providing they can remedy them because they won't be brought up at the judgment seat. But certainly our issues, if we won't face them, will. And I think one of the largest issues, brethren and sisters, and I have to say this because it impresses me as much as anybody else, the largest issue we'll have to face is our dealings with our brethren and sisters. Forgive them, Forgive, ask for forgiveness as we forgive them. By what measure ye meet, you will be judged. What, how do we treat our brethren and sisters, particularly those we don't particularly get on with? Do we take the aspect, which I so often do, of just avoiding speaking to them? That way it's the easy way out. Well, let me tell you this. You'll have to speak to them at the judgment seat. Christ will not allow, it's an impossibility, for him to allow two brethren or sisters to go into the kingdom who dislike each other. That, of all issues, has to be sorted out. And Christ will say, sort it out or you will not go into the kingdom. Maybe one is totally wrong and one is totally right. That will come out in that as well. But I think in more cases it will be that both have got something that they should have changed in their life. We're going to have to, brothers and sisters, face that. And therefore, isn't it much easier to be honest with those things now? And if we have problems with each other, with brethren, have it out now. Settle the issues that we won't have to do it in front of our brethren and sisters. No wonder the book of Revelation says at the judgment seat there will be those that will be seen naked 
by the other brethren and sisters because they're strict, we're strict brethren and sisters of everything. But when you think of it in the positive sense, how beautiful that is, brethren and sisters, we go into the kingdom with an absolute free conscience. We will not get into the kingdom saying, phew, at least that issue wasn't brought up. Everything in our life will be brought out into the open and will be dealt with. And we can go into that kingdom in that situation where we're absolutely, all of us, level. Absolutely leveled. How appreciative we will be then at the judgment seat. You know, we have to really lift ourselves to where we appreciate the judgment seat and in that sense look forward to it. A bit like I suppose going to the dentist. Um, I don't know how many of you don't like going to the dentist. But you know full well, once you've been there, that everything's right when you come out, or it should be. And all the pains and the aches have gone. The judgment's like that. It's not going to be very nice, brethren and sisters, but look at the relief that is going to come from it and the joy of being in the kingdom of God. It's no wonder that Paul in Corinthians can say, I look forward to being at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what he says. I look forward to being at his tribunal seat. He didn't say in the kingdom. Oh, he did say on some occasions, but particularly in Corinthians he says, I look forward to standing at his tribunal seat. Because he believed that he had tried to do the right thing and when he hadn't, God would correct that at the judgment seat. And if our desire is God manifestation, then we'd be happy for God to wipe everything out that doesn't manifest him. Let's look, brethren and sisters, at the judgment seat in that positive light. On the basis that we stand, I believe, on the very verge of it. There's every, every possibility, brethren and sisters, that it will be this year, before the end of this year is out. But it ushers us into the kingdom of God. And what's the results? Well, come back to Psalm 72. And the results, of course, of that judgment are beautiful. Because there will be a class who will become king priests. And there they are in verse 3. Because along with the king in verse 1, there are mountains and little hills that help him. So that's what it's saying. The king reigns in verse 3. And the mountains and the little hills help him. They bring peace to the people by righteousness. Who are they? Well, it's pretty obvious who they are, aren't they? Because mountains, of course, is a reference to kings. It's a scriptural term for kings, such as in Psalm 149 and, for instance, in the book of Daniel. Mountains represents kings. It's therefore no surprise that the very word used here for little hills is the word for the bonnet of the priest in Exodus 28, verse 40. When the priest made little bonnets and put on their heads, the word is this word, little hills. Here are the king priests, brethren and sisters, of Revelation 5 and verse 10. That's us. And so the kingdom can now present, be, uh, can now continue, or rather start, I suppose, because Christ has returned, the judgment seat has taken place, the saints have been rewarded, we now come up from Sinai and the kingdom can take place. And so the order follows the kingdom, the establishment of the kingdom. Verses 4 to 6, rightly so, are judgments upon the nation of Israel first. The nation of Israel will be blessed first. And we get a clue to that in verse, um, uh, verse 8, because the verse 8 says, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. Now, there's an echo here, of course, of the Abrahamic promises and the same words, <coughs> excuse me, that are used in Zechariah 9 concerning the nation of Israel. So there's blessings upon Israel first that they're going to benefit from. 
you know, brothers and sisters, in unlocking that key, as it were, it's beautiful because you come to verse 6 and it says, He shall come down like rain upon mown grass and as showers that water the earth. The word mown is the word for shearing sheep. And you think, now what on earth has that got to do? But remember where fleece is mentioned in scripture? When Gideon said, show me a sign that thou wilt bless Israel first. And the rain and the dew came upon the fleece and not upon the ground. And then in answer to the fact who then it will be upon, it was upon the ground and not upon the fleece. In direct answer to, to uh, Gideon's miracle from God, it answers verse 6 as to why Israel are here in the context as mown grass or as sheared, shorn sheep. Used also, by the way, in the Song of Solomon. And they're spoken of as sheep that are newly shorn, that come down from the mountain. And so here is the blessings upon Israel. And again, to follow the pattern that we know elsewhere in the prophecies, verse 9 then is talking about blessings upon the Arabs, upon the other side of Abraham's family. He shall have dominion from sea to sea, uh, sorry, verse 9, they shall dwell in, they that dwell in the wilderness. And the word wilderness there, of course, is the desert. And so literally, as it's translated in most translations, they that are desert dwellers will bow before him and his enemies, that's the enemies of Israel, God's enemies, they will lick the dust. And there's no greater enemy, of course, of Israel than those that surround them and hate them. They're going to receive the blessing of God, as we know. Then the blessings can flow out to the rest of the nations. And so, as we have it there on the overhead from verses 10 to 15, the blessings will go upon all the nations. Kings of Tarshish, the isles shall bring presents. All kings, in verse 11, shall fall down before him. And so, blessings will go out to all the nations. But then we come through that, brethren and sisters, to, uh, to verse 16 and an interesting one that's inserted there to show it won't just be blessings upon the nations and upon the people, but the earth also will receive a blessing. We know it's a time when the curse put upon the earth through the sin of Adam is going to be reversed. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountain. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. And so the growth, brother and sisters, is going to be so prolific that one could stand on the top of a mountain and throw a handful of corn in the air and go up and reap it, probably several times a year, and get something from it. But then it goes on and says, and they of the city, it's got to be, brethren, the city of Jerusalem. It's got to be the city, brethren and sisters, to which they all come, Yahweh Shema, on their way up to serve God. They will flourish like the grass of the earth. The activity, can you imagine? Every nation of the earth sending their ambassadors up to stay first in Yahweh Shema where they can see the temple and say Yahweh is there and then go up to where Yahweh is and make their offerings. That The activity there is summed up. They of the city shall flourish like the grass of the field. There's a couple of suggestions, brethren and sisters, on that verse that some take it literally and some make it actually uh, concerning a city. And in fact, the, the Septuagint takes that whole verse and even the handful of corn on the mountains and they make it apply to the land and to the establishment of the future Zion. So the, 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 um, 
Septuagint translates this verse, there shall be an establishment upon the top of the mountains. There shall be an establishment upon the top of the mountains and they of the city, that is of that city that's established, will flourish like grass. Uh, Jerusalem translation takes it in the natural and says uh, there will be grain everywhere, even on the top of mountains. Either picture, brethren and sisters, is two views, if you like, of the kingdom, the kingdom age, when those things will take place. And then the psalm goes on in verses 17 to 18 to remind us that all nations then will come to know and to serve God in spirit and truth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued in the sun because it's not as long as the sun at all. The sun will always be there. Um, the name shall be continued in the sun. It's probably typical, obviously, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed is Yahweh God, the God of Israel, who alone doeth wondrous things. And it goes on and finally says, And blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. No wonder, David says, now my prayers are fulfilled. Because not only takes us through the kingdom age, but in that last verse 19 takes us beyond into the time of the all and in all when there will be, brethren and sisters, in the words of Revelation, no more sea, but when there will just simply be blessings upon the earth. But of course, the, so the prayer that we are doing said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. But it went further, didn't it, as we said. It says, Thy will be done on earth, but then it talks about it being done in heaven. And I thought, well, perhaps this, yes, this is still on being done on earth. I, uh, in heaven is a later transparency. His kingdom will be done on earth. We've looked at Psalm 72. Let's have a look at another one of my favourite verses, or favourite chapters, Isaiah chapter 11. I like it when we've got an opportunity to go to chapters that you love dealing with. Psalm 72, uh, when I'm doing lectures at home for any ecclesia and they ring up for my reading and they say, you're, you're, to Geraldine, your husband's speaking on the kingdom, she says, oh, Psalm 72. Um, and Isaiah 11, very similarly, is a favourite quotation. It's so beautiful, brethren and sisters. It picks up all the points of, of Psalm 72. From verse 3 in, in Isaiah chapter 11, we've got the judgment seat again mentioned in Psalm 72 verse 2 and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes neither reprove after the hearing of his ears there's the judgment seat he won't judge brethren and sisters by what he can see and what he hears he will judge brethren and sisters in the terms that we talked about where everybody's life is totally open and he sees what they really are that's the judgment seat then it goes on and says, But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. So now judgment on the earth, which of course comes from Psalm 72. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips and he shall slay the wicked. That shall start with the battle of Armageddon. And from then on, brethren and sisters, there will be the causing of the earth to seek his righteousness. It will be brought about by the wrath of God, by the judgments of God upon the earth. Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins 
and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. We're now into the kingdom age. And look how the kingdom is expressed here. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. So I just realised I should have gone on a couple there. Um, a little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be filled of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. And that last phrase reminds us of course the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh that we're only talking of the kingdom of God here not so much the beyond, the time, the all and in all. But what we've got here, brethren and sisters, is undoubtedly symbols that represent nations as they do in scripture. And who else could they represent other than Israel and the nations? You see, every unclean animal is with a clean animal. The wolf, unclean, lies down with the lamb. The leopard, unclean, lies down with the kid and the calf. The young lion, unclean, lays down with the fatling. The cow, in verse 7, the the clean, lies down with the bear. The lion at the end of verse 7, unclean, lies down with the ox. Here, brethren and sisters, is what has never happened since Israel's been a nation. Total harmony with the nation of Israel. The time when they will come to him who is a Jew, take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew and say, we will go with you, for we know that God is with you. That's the day it's talking about, brethren and sisters. Total harmony. If you doubt that, we haven't got time to to go into all these verses, but if we want to write it down, at least uh, the lion, the wolf, the leopard are mentioned in Jeremiah 5 verse 6 as the enemies of Israel. And so here are the enemies of Israel that are going to be dealt with and they're going to be in harmony with Israel. But look who's going to bring it about. A little child shall lead them. Who could that be, brethren and sisters, other than the Lord Jesus Christ? It has to be a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go across to chapter 9 of Isaiah and verse 6, it tells us that, doesn't it? In words again we know so well. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Could we have any doubt, brethren and sisters, as who the little child is who will lead them at that time? It's Christ in control. But look at verse 8. Like Psalm 72 included the saints, we're included in verse 8 because it says there are two here, a sucking child and a weaned child and their job is to be on the whole of the asp and the cockatrice. Now notice what it says because the cow and the bear are dwelling together. All these other animals are all dwelling together. You can see them there on the surface. Got a picture of them. They're all dwelling together in this picture. The asp and the cockatrice are underneath the ground And what keeps them there is a sucking child and a weaned child. That's us, brethren and sisters, as king priests during the millennium. We are keeping sin in control. That's our duty. We keep sin in control. And at the end of the thousand years, brethren and sisters, as Revelation says, we will be withdrawn from, in the terms of here, the whole of the asp and the whole whole of the cockatrice den, and they'll come out of the ground and there will be rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ. But as long as the sucking child and weaned child are there controlling them, the saints, that doesn't happen. Now again, we've got proof, brothers and sisters, that that's the saints. Because again, Isaiah explains it. Isaiah 66, 
verses 11 and 12. You can mark it alongside there if you like. Isaiah 66, verse 11 through to verse 13. You've got an explanation of who the sucking child, remember, and the weaned child are. Go back to verse 10. Rejoice ye with Jerusalem. Be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn with her, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I extend peace like her to a river, the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then ye shall suck, ye shall be borne upon her sides, and dandled upon her knees. There'll be the sucking child and there'll be the dandled upon the knees, the weaned child. As one whom his mother comforted, so will I comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. That's the promise to the saints. That's the promise to spiritual Israel. And here it is, back in Isaiah chapter 11. There they are, working with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're the sucking child and the weaned child who work with him to bring everything into order and to keep it that way until, as we said, we know from Revelation they are going to be removed from that position and there will be a rebellion at the end of the millennium. And so we have that beautiful summary there in verse 9. And so we have two pictures, brethren and sisters, in Isaiah 11 and in Psalm 72... Isaiah 11 finishes there, of the kingdom of God. But you see, the psalm or the, the prayer of, of the Lord Jesus Christ didn't say there will, will do God's will on earth. It said there will be God's will, on, uh, God's will will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. And that now becomes an explanation of what it's ultimately talking about and that is the time when all are serving God in spirit and in truth. All are immortal and all are serving him there with the same will as is found in the angels which are in heaven with Almighty God. This, brethren and sisters, is Yahweh's ultimate plan that the earth will be filled with his glory as the waters cover the sea. So let's, in conclusion of this section, let us look up these quotations we have which all speak, brethren and sisters, of this time when the earth shall be totally full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The kingdom itself will be a wonderful time but for us, brethren and sisters, far greater than that is the time beyond when all have immortality. Malachi 2 and verse 15. He says, Did he not make one... Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Now it's in the context of husband and wife becoming one. But you notice what it says. Did he not make one in the beginning, yet he had the rest, yet did he have the residue of the Spirit, is what it's saying. It's going back to the creation, brethren and sisters, and it's saying that when God created, he created Adam on his own. He created one man. Is that, says Malachi, because he didn't have enough power or spirit to make two? Of course it's not. 
God could have made man and woman together. Why did he make one and then out of that one form two? Well, in the context to some extent of Malachi because there will be a, a close union between the two but more importantly because God's plan is always singular. I will fill this earth with my glory as the waters cover the sea. His will will be done by all so that Paul actually can say in the future beyond the millennium it will be all and in all. One is the plan and purpose of Almighty God. And he showed that in making one man in the beginning. That's my plan, is that there will be just one worship of one God. And of course, out of that, he was then to make Eve as a lesson as well. And they are in the plan and purpose of God. If it's not that way, brethren and sisters, then God made a mistake in the first place. When he should have made two, he only made one. But Malachi picks up the point, he purposely made one. Not because he had any limit to the power he has, but because he wanted to get a message over. Oneness is the whole principle of God. And that's why man and woman come together as one. That's why it's important they must remain as one. And if they separate, that is broken down completely. So there's a principle involved, brethren and sisters, which we've picked up as we go through uh, this, uh, uh, this prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ that ultimately his plan has always been oneness, singleness and that will come about when his will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 28. This Corinthians 15, 28 verse, talking of this, we quoted this verse, at least ad-libbed it, talking about the after millennium, verse 24, then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put down all men enemies under his feet, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he, hath put, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued to him, one, he made one, the lesson of oneness. When all things have been subjected to him and subdued unto him, then shall the Son of Man also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God might be all and in all. But that's the time we're talking about. And I notice I haven't got any verses particularly of Revelation 21, but you know Revelation 21 is, of course, the vision of the third heaven. It's the vision, brethren and sisters, in Revelation of the time beyond the millennium when there is no more sea and when though all that are there are full manifestations of the heavenly Father. And so this prayer, again, brethren and sisters, we emphasise, takes us not simply, it doesn't ask for us simply to think about the kingdom, but it transports our, our vision way beyond that, brethren and sisters, to the time when we shall, shall uh, spend eternity with each other and with Almighty God and his Son.